Our main scripture reading is going to be from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. going to be reading verses 10 through 16, but the bulk of our concentration will be on verses 10 through 14. The Word of God says this, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Now, before diving into this portion of Scripture, it would help to provide a brief background on the book of Hebrews, because this portion that we just read is sort of the climax of the book. So it's necessary that you understand who the audience is, what's going on historically, and how it would have been understood by the original audience with the material that was presented throughout the first 12 chapters. This is going to help to open the text for us and understand how this speaks to the Christian. Hebrews was an epistle to a Jewish audience. And all of the Jews could fit into one of three categories. First, there were those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They converted and they put their trust in him. Second, there were those who were resistant to convert. And third, this was a massive group. There were those who were attracted to Christ. And there was an appeal for this new sect that they called the Way, but they were still on the fence. Local synagogues were full of mixed congregations like this, and this is critical to understanding some of the challenging passages in Hebrews. There are times where the author is clearly speaking directly to believers. At other times, the writer is pronouncing judgment on those who neglect so great a salvation. And then there are the warning passages, such as Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. And on the surface, these sound as though a born-again Christian can commit apostasy. But these are general warnings issued for the sake of the masses who are still on the fence. Those who are attracted to Christ and perhaps made a profession of faith, but they weren't yet truly committed. They were in danger of the apostasy and utterly forsaking the truth of Christ. And the main pressure to do so was persecution. And it was persecution from multiple angles. The Jewish leadership, they were persecuting believers by cutting them off from temple worship and the religious community. The Judaizers were going about tempting believers to revert back to Judaism and to pursue righteousness by works of the law. And the Roman persecution had just begun in 64 AD, which was not long before this letter was written. 
So this is one last appeal. The author is writing to the Hebrews to fully and finally embrace the Lord Jesus, and not only by putting the fear of God in them with stern warnings of judgment, but also by revealing the absolute supremacy and sufficiency that is found in Christ. And he uses this one word throughout the book to describe this, and it's the word better. It's used over a dozen times. The book presents Christ as being better than Abraham, better than Moses, Aaron, Joshua, better than the Levitical priests, and even King David. He is even declared to be better than the angels as the ultimate revelation of who God is and the crowned king of glory. He is the surety of a mediator and the mediator of a better covenant, which is founded on better promises with a better priesthood offering a better sacrifice with better blood unto a better hope, a better resurrection, and a better and enduring possession in a better country, which is in heaven. Christ and his benefits are incomparably greater. Now with all of that said, this comes at a great cost. You see, following Christ would cost the Hebrews everything that they held dear in this life. It would cost them their ethno-religious identity. It would cost them their precious temple worship. It would cost them their loved ones, their possessions, and in many instances it would even cost them their lives, and yet the author urges them to fully and finally embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, who is worth infinitely more, and it's because the shadows, the shadows of the old covenant cannot save, and the shadows, the old covenant administration is about to pass away, and judgment on Israel was imminent. So this is the question that they had to ask themselves at the end of this epistle. And this is the question here tonight. How much is Christ worth to you? Is Jesus your chief treasure in life? Are you willing to give up your sin and the things of this life and this world? And would you even be willing to suffer for his name? This is the nature of what it is to follow Christ and we're going to see how the author unpacks this using a theme of sacrifice. The old covenant sacrifices, the superior sacrifice fulfilled in Christ Jesus and the sacrifices that are required of the believer in turn if you would have any part in him. So with that backdrop let's look again beginning in verses 10 through 11. It says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. The most holy day on the Jewish calendar was the Day of Atonement. And this is the day that Hebrews 13 harkens back to. This was the one day in the entire year that the high priest was to enter into the Holy of Holies in order to make atonement for the people of Israel. I'm not going to touch on all the details, but there are several things worth noting. First, the high priest had to make atonement for himself. He would slaughter a young bull and then he would bring the blood into the holiest place and he would sprinkle it before the mercy seat. This would allow him to be a suitable mediator to then make atonement for the people. For them, he would slaughter the sin offering of a young goat, 
And he would bring the blood of the goat into the holiest place and sprinkle it on the mercy seat just as before to make atonement for the congregation. Next, the high priest took a live goat. And what he did was he laid his hands on the head of the goat, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And here we have a beautiful illustration of imputation. That is the transference of the people's sins through the mediation of the high priest onto the substitute. And so the scapegoat bore the sins of the people, was now considered accursed and was led out in the wilderness and released, never to be seen again, which pictured the removal of sin. And lastly, this is very important, the carcasses of the slaughtered bull and goat, the animals whose blood was used to sprinkle on the mercy seat, the bodies of those animals were then brought outside the camp to be burned. This was symbolic of the wrath of God. Outside the camp was the place of uncleanness. That's where they sent lepers. That's where they sent others with various diseases. This is where they used the bathroom and buried dead bodies. That was also where they performed executions, such as the stoning of blasphemers and other capital criminals. So outside the camp is synonymous with uncleanness and judgment. This is where they burn the bodies of those animals, wholly consumed by fire. So this was the Day of Atonement, atonement for the priests, for the people, as well as atonement for the tabernacle. We don't often think of the tabernacle itself needing purification, but that's what it says in Leviticus 16. That sin is so filthy and so detestable to God and so pervasive that everyone and everything, including the tabernacle and its furnishings, needed the slate wiped clean. So this sacrifice had to be offered year after year after year. In addition to the innumerable sacrifices made throughout the year, it was a never-ending cycle and it was never enough. It's because the blood of animals had no power. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 sums it up this way. It says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But, listen to this, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see, instead of accomplishing what it pictured, which was the actual covering of sin, instead it was just a constant reminder that not only could it never cover sin, but it could never secure real peace with God. But it pointed forward to what could. It pointed forward to the one who could. And chapter 13, verse 12, reveals that to us. It says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And so everything that was foreshadowed in the Day of Atonement was fulfilled in the once-for-all substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus. So again, let's just walk through a few of the details. Just like the scapegoat, our sins were imputed to Christ. 
Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And so our sins were credited to his account, and he was then led outside of the gates of Jerusalem to be crucified. Remember, outside the gates is the place of uncleanness and judgment. And there at Golgotha, he suffered the fierce wrath of Almighty God in the place of sinners. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and as the great high priest, he ascended into the holiest of all in heaven and sprinkled the blood of his own sacrifice on the mercy seat. That is the throne of grace and atoned for the sins of his people. This is far superior in every way. God became a man, and as a man, he could truly stand in your place. And not only were your sins imputed to him, but he could impute to you a righteousness that no animal ever could. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished, because the debt was actually fully and finally paid. The cycle concluded with his once-for-all sacrifice, and furthermore, he granted you access to the throne of grace. And as your high priest, he continues to live. He lives forever, ever to intercede for you, and has given you the Holy Spirit, a guarantee for the completion of your salvation to be revealed when he returns. And that's why we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat because of what Christ has done for you in the atonement. Now it's very interesting, this language of eating that is used in verse 10. Unlike many of the other old covenant sacrifices from which portions of the animal were to be eaten by the high priest and or the people, the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement could not be eaten. But the sacrifice of Christ, because it's better, we are invited and even commanded to eat. Jesus himself said in John 6, 53 to 54, Jesus said to the people, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him at the last day. Now, there were many who misunderstood the saying, and they were offended by it, and they ceased following him. But what he's alluding to is the sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross, and the way that we partake of him is by faith. That is faith in the person as well as the finished work of Christ. And if you're here tonight, or you're listening online, and you have not turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you have no right to this altar. You have no right to Christ. You have no share in the cross or in heaven. You see, you'll never be saved through any false religion. And you'll certainly never be saved by your own works. And it's because God, his standard of righteousness is perfection. And only Jesus was perfect. Hell is going to be filled with well-meaning people who are convinced that they're right with God when in actuality they are far from him and they're going to suffer for eternity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. So you must repent of your sins and flee to Christ. And when you do, you will be set apart with his own blood. You will be clothed in his righteousness. And that is the only way that you'll be able to stand before God on judgment day. If you're outside of Christ, you are yet under judgment. But if you're in Christ, you have joined him outside the camp. And this is the analogy that the writer of Hebrews continues with. And this is the mental picture that I really want to instill in your minds this evening. This is more than just a lesson on types and shadows and how those things were fulfilled in Christ. He then uses this analogy to characterize the Christian life. The sin offerings were burned outside the camp. Jesus suffered outside the gate in fulfillment of the scriptures. Then to the Christian, it says in verse 13, therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. So what does this mean exactly? Let's get specific. Think back to the Hebrews. Again, the Hebrews were being presented with a choice, each with its own pros and cons, if we could put it that way. Option one is that they could go back to their shadows. They could go back to their tradition and their ease and comfort. They can pursue righteousness by their own works. They can have their temple and their city Jerusalem which they boasted in and experience temporary safety from the persecution. But all of that was going to be destroyed in 70 AD. God would judge Israel as an apostate nation for rejecting the king of the Jews and the king of the universe. And at that point, the Levitical priesthood would be abolished. The temple would lie in ruins, the walls of Jerusalem leveled to the ground, and the old administration would officially pass away. That's option one. Option two, they could cling to Christ, who is the substance of God's redemptive plan, and share in all of the temporal and eternal spiritual blessings in him, but this would come with bearing his reproach. So what is this saying? Separation from the world and sin. And it's separation to Christ and his sufferings. And this should come as no surprise because we see examples throughout the scriptures of God calling his people out. He says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And they had to forsake lands. They had to forsake families. They had to forsake sin and the comforts of this life and many times to suffer for righteousness' sake. The Lord called Abram to leave his father's pagan country and to go to a land that God would show him. And by faith, Abram left everything behind and he lived out the rest of his life as a stranger in a foreign land. Moses grew up as a prince in Egypt and he had all of the rights, privileges, and luxuries of royalty while his kinsmen were enslaved and mistreated on a daily basis. But by faith, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasure in Egypt. In the Babylonian captivity, Daniel and the three Hebrews, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they chose by faith not to eat the polluted meats, they chose not to bow to the idols of Babylon 
and they chose not to succumb to the pressure to cease worshiping the one true and living God. And they were willing to face the fiery furnace in the case of the three Hebrews and even the lion's den in the case of Daniel. Many more examples could be given. But Hebrews 11 catalogs the many trials that were endured by the faithful throughout the ages. It says that others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And then Christ steps onto the scene. And consider again what happened to Jesus, who suffered after the same pattern and then told his disciples to expect the same treatment as their master. Why? Because there's a war that's going on between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And that's what you and I live in now. In John 15, verse 9, Jesus tells us, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The Apostle Paul says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so at this point you might ask, What about us? I hear what you're saying about separation, but we don't face persecution the way our brothers and sisters do in other parts of the world. We've heard that in many sermons. I've said it. We've heard it in congregational prayers. But the reality is that things are changing in our society and in the Western world. Christianity has gone from being a pillar of Western civilization to being something that is marginally respected to being something that now many people want eliminated altogether and if you don't see the increasing hostility towards Christianity whether it's in the middle of the culture war whether it's in the social and political narratives then you're not paying close attention ask your elders ask Christians who've been around 50 60 70 years and if something doesn't change soon this nation is going to go the way of every other nation. It's already under a Romans 1 judgment. Given over to sexual revolutions, given over to rampant perversion, given over to moral degeneration. You know what happens next in a nation like that? Spiritual and criminal chaos. And the voices of those who would stand for righteousness must be silenced. And if you don't keep quiet, then they resort to any means necessary to suppress the truth and to suppress anyone who would speak the truth. Think about all the major issues going on today and in recent times. COVID, LGBTQIA2S+, rights, and that's not an exaggeration, that's what it is now. Education, abortion, the January 6th insurrection hearings, mass shootings, you name it. You know what they all have in common? Christians are being identified as villains in each of these issues. And this is not happening on the fringes somewhere. These are mainstream talking points. Mainstream media, 
primetime television, major newspapers and outlets, public policy and discourse, our schools, our courts, business, even in sports. And this is not just happening in our major institutions. This is happening in the lives of individuals who get attacked, who get arrested, who have to speak to university police for witnessing to Christ on college campuses, who get fired from jobs. This is happening every single day, and it's happening faster than any of us could have anticipated. This is not to digress too far, only to say that every generation has its defining issues. And the issues of a generation are what inevitably wind up separating the children of God from the children of Satan. The separation is taking place and we have to be willing to stand for truth. Now why does God bring these things to pass? Well, to bring greater judgment on this world, but also to purify his church. You see, it's easy to get comfortable here and then fall asleep. And the scriptures warn us from becoming sluggish. Hebrews 6.12, it warns of becoming sluggish and that you need to be aware of what's going on and the reality that you could never know when your time will come because that's what puts everything back into perspective. Otherwise, we think that we'll always be here and we continue living for the things of this world and we become very carnal and comfortable in that. Jesus told the parable of a rich man who ran out of storage space for his crops. So he thought he would tear down his barns and build bigger barns. And he said to himself, Soul, have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, You fool. You didn't know that tonight your life would be required of you. And I'm not saying not to work hard and to take care of yourselves and your family, and to plan for the future and make wise decisions, but the Bible is clear to remind us that whether by providence, persecution, or death, you can lose anything and everything in a moment, and so you have to keep the first things first and in view at all times. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Its comforts, its temptations, its pleasures, and its ways. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so I ask you the same question that I asked earlier. How much is Christ worth to you? Would you be willing to suffer loss and persecution? Is Jesus your chief treasure or is there competition for the throne of your heart? Are you actively seeking to grow in your knowledge, love, and adoration for him in anticipation of his soon coming? What are your priorities and your convictions? And that's what this really boils down to because your priorities and your convictions are what dictate the way that you live your lives. And Jesus didn't die just to save you from sin. And he didn't die just to save you from the wrath of God. He didn't die just to rescue you. And Christians can comfortably coast through life and religious routines. Jesus died to make you holy. He died to separate you and to call you out unto himself 
and unto a greater kingdom. And we're to live in light of that kingdom. And this world is not your home. We talked about Abraham, Moses, Daniel, and those who chose to live lives of faith and holiness and endurance of trials and tribulations. It was because they knew that they didn't belong here. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They had faith in the promises of God. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in this world. And if they wanted to turn back to their carnal lives and safety, they could have done that. But they pursued faith and holiness and endured to the end because they desired above all else to be with God in heaven. Chapter 13, verse 14, puts it this way. It says, For here we have no continuing city, and the Jews had to find that out the hard way. Again, they put their confidence in Jerusalem and it was wiped out. And they were cast out of their ancestral homeland. And then the Romans, just to stick it to them, they renamed the land Palestine after the Philistines, who were the, an arch enemy of Israel. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come, the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And so you have no permanent dwelling here. Hebrews, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter, he says that this whole universe is going to pass away and that the elements are going to melt with fervent heat and the earth and all of its works are going to be burned up. And please don't misunderstand me. We have many blessings in this life and we should enjoy those things because they're gifts from God. Your families, whatever it is that God has given you, all of your labors to which he has called you to, all of those things are good. But there are two words of caution here. First, it's all transitory. As I said before, you could lose anything and everything in an instant. And whatever you have to your dying day, you don't get to take any of it with you. So be careful that your enjoyment of God's blessings doesn't become carnal by forgetting the one who has blessed you or by relying on transitory things for your enjoyment and for your satisfaction. That's idolatry. And second, and this is so important, your pursuits in this life are defined by your motives for pursuing them. I'll say that again. Your pursuits in this life are defined by your motives for pursuing them. What I mean by that is that your blessings can become curses when your desires are to store up treasures on earth. Instead of having an overarching desire that guides all of you do, all that you do, which is to store up treasures in heaven. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, 
Jesus said to his disciples, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so, here's a good litmus test. Think about this. Where do you find your heart settled most often? Is it on the things of this world? Or is it in heaven with Christ? You must consciously live in light of heaven. And heaven is beyond all of our wildest imaginations. It is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And the Bible doesn't have much to say about what heaven is actually going to be like, but it has a lot to say about what heaven won't be like. And so all that we know is that we will be with God there and it's not going to be anything like our lives now. Revelation 21, verses three to four, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So just think about this for a second. No more grief, no more sin, no more shame, and no more loss. All things will be made new, and the new things are incorruptible and imperishable and undefiled and never fading. A world of everlasting love and joy and perfection because God is there. He is your internal inheritance. The Lord himself is your portion. It's not what can Christ give me, it's that Christ has given you himself. And he calls you to surrender yourself to him in everything. Who would forfeit that? What could possibly compare to that? The fullness of the beauty and perfection of the presence of God and the actual realization of every spiritual blessing in Him forever and ever and ever. All these cheap possessions the fleeting pleasures of sin, the momentary and light affliction of bearing the reproach of Jesus. What is your life? It is but a vapor that is here for a little time and then vanishes away. But glory with God and with the Lamb are forever and ever satisfying. And so forsake the ways of this world. Set aside every sin and every weight that hinders you from growing in knowledge and in grace and in deeper intimacy with the Savior. Stop living for this life and live for the life to come. God has so much more in store for you and it's yours because he sacrificed his life for you. So offer yourselves, first and foremost, as living sacrifices to him and continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name. And do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. 
And in these verses 15 to 16, what we really see is the second commandment followed by the first and great commandment. When it says, let us go forth to him outside the camp, what is that but to say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so praise him for who he is. Thank him for what he's done for you in the cross. Thank him for what he's doing in your life now in transforming you by greater and greater degrees into his image. And thank him for what he's going to do when he comes to consummate his kingdom and sum up all things in Christ. And you'll be raised from the dead and given a glorified body and be told, well done, good and faithful servant, and ushered into heaven, paradise with the Lord God forever. Everything will be perfect and whole and beautiful. Confess his name to a lost and dying world. And don't forget to do good and to share, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Love your neighbor as yourself, especially the people of God. In closing, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. I pray that it would ring in our ears afresh. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Just like the Hebrews, each one of us can fit into one of three categories tonight. If you're still in the camp, that is outside of Christ, you want nothing to do with him and you're living for this world, Jesus said, what does it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Consider King Solomon, one of the wisest men in all of scripture, but also the richest of all the kings of Israel. And Ecclesiastes too, he talks about all the treasures of this world that he heaped up for himself. He had palaces, he had gardens and pools, he had musicians and singers, he had male and female servants. He had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. He had gold and silver beyond measure and he says that everything that I desired I did not withhold from myself. Everything that I desired I took and sought to enjoy these things and what I found was vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That means everything is empty, everything is futile, everything is useless apart from God. That was King Solomon, one of the wisest men in all of Scripture. Everything in this life is going to perish and all that will last is Christ and His kingdom and all of the labors that have been done for Him. You were made for God and nothing else can truly satisfy your soul. 
And so I plead with you, be reconciled to God, repent of your sins, flee to Christ, and you will have the gift of eternal life. Second group, and this is not so different from the first, but these are for those who, they're straddling the fence. You've got one foot in the camp and one foot out the camp. There really is no in-between. You may want Christ, but you don't want to leave some things behind. Or you're not sure if you're willing to bear the cost of following Him. You can't have it both ways. Today is a day of decision, and you have a duty to believe. And so choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And thirdly, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to encourage you and stir you on to greater devotion and diligence and good works. Let us go forth to him outside the camp. Christ is leading you towards heaven and as heaven approaches, your separation from this world should be increasing with godly maturity and everything else is loss. And so pursue holiness. Be strong and of good courage. Doesn't matter what this world thinks of you or whatever it is that comes. Christ is always with you, even to the end of the age. You will have to endure some things, but God is sovereign, and when he brings those things into your life, whether it's trials or persecutions, it's to strip you of your cares for this life, and it's to sanctify you and make you more like Jesus, who was perfected through sufferings. That's the model for his people. And it's also to turn your eyes upward, looking to him and looking to heaven where you truly belong. Remember his promise. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One day the clouds are going to break and Christ is going to descend victoriously and he's going to take his bride home. How could you not live in joyous preparation for that? He gave his all for us. Let us give our all for him. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you in humble adoration. Father, we praise you for all that you've done. We praise you for what you're doing. We praise you for what you will do. We give you thanks, Lord. We know that all is only of your grace, that we are nothing but dust. And Lord, we deserve nothing from you but judgment in hell and you would be right to just abandon us and to leave us to our own sin and store up judgment and to suffer for our sins forever. But you have sent your only Son, the Son of God, to come and to bear your wrath in our place. In fulfillment of the scriptures, Christ, you have atoned for our sins. That means they are covered past, present, future, for all of those who are in Christ, it is finished. 
Help us to really grasp this, Lord Jesus. Help us to find joy in this and satisfaction and even strength as we continue to mortify remaining sin in our lives and to separate from this world, from the world's system, from its carnal comforts, from all of its temptations, from all of its perverse and wicked ways. Father, work in us. Draw us nearer to your Son. Just as you brought us to him for salvation, so lead us to him closer and closer that we could behold his beauty even more and more in the scriptures and be transformed into his image and become like him and to be like him and to be his hands and feet in this world and to confess his name to this lost and dying world. Father, we bless you. We pray that you would apply this to our heart. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name, and to whom we give all the praise and glory forever and ever. Amen.